are a wife of a black man. And I just became so overwhelmed. And I also was overwhelmed because it is not every day that we encounter as black women, white men who see us. Hey, it's Breaking Barriers, the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging podcast. We're here for real talk. We're not afraid to go there. And we want you to come away emboldened and energized to take action and make change. We believe our diversity, our differences, when joined together by a common set of ideals, makes us stronger. When I set out to help someone, uh, it is my intention to do just that. I'm not trying to do anything other than meet somebody at their humanity. Your world has changed, but your dreams shouldn't have to. That's why Kirkwood is your next best step. With affordable, flexible, and close-to-home options, now's a great time to start or finish your Kirkwood degree. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash findyourfuture. Displaced or discouraged at work? Kirkwood can help you learn a new skill or totally reinvent yourself for a brand new career. With so many flexible and affordable options, you can get back on track fast. Learn more at kirkwood.edu slash findyourfuture. What's up, world? What's up? We're back again with another episode of Breaking Barriers, brought to you by Kirkwood Community College. Today's episode is also sponsored by Hawkeye Community College. We are glad for our sponsors. I'm one of your co-hosts, Anthony Arrington, a managing partner at Top Rank. I am joined by my co-host, Nick Ford. Enjoy Briscoe. Hello, world. What's Hi. happening? Hi. Glad to be back. Yes, yes. yes. Looking forward to this. Yeah. We've been waiting on this one. We've all known Nika for a while, and I know I've been following her like a mole. Glad to have you on. We're going to have a great conversation and really get down and dirty about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging today. Nick, why don't you tell us a little bit about, excuse me, Joy. Okay. Tell us a little bit about Nika. It is actually my honor. So I actually came in contact with Nika. It's been maybe four or five years ago now, and just came into a community that I was a part of and was just a powerhouse in talking about collaboration. And I feel like she had such a different approach when it came to DIB work that everyone in the room just gravitate toward, gravitated towards it. And they really had this, she was able to kind of break down people's defenses and really just come at it from this model of we need to come together and do this work. So, so excited. I'm going to go into your official bio, but I wanted to share that girl to girl that you just have inspired me so much along this journey and getting started and that I wanted to dive into this work and be fully committed to this work. So along that line, (laughs) Dr. Nika White is a national author, author and fearless advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion. As an award-winning management and leadership consultant, keynote speaker, published author, and executive practitioner for DEI efforts across business, government, nonprofit, and education, Dr. White helps organizations break barriers, pun intended, break barriers while we're here today, and integrate diversity into their business frameworks. Her work has led to designations by Forbes as a top 10 DNI trailblazer. Over her 20 years of leadership, Dr. White has worked with over 200 corporate, educational, government, and nonprofit brands, managed over $200 million in business assets for her clients, and presented over 125 keynote speeches and presentations across the country on issues that include intentional inclusion. Dr. White is the author of two books, The Intentional Inclusionist and Next Level Inclusionist, Transforming Transforming Your Work and Yourself for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Success. Welcome, Dr. White. We are so honored and pleased to have you with us today and just talk more about your journey and learn and share with our audience. Oh, Joy, I am thrilled. I feel like I'm the beneficiary for having the opportunity to be reconnected with you and Anthony. And Nick, I so look forward to being engaged today. I'm thrilled. So thank you so much for thinking of me for this opportunity. Let's get into it. Let's kick it off here. I thought of this question last night because I, from the last time we met, I, I had so many things I wanted to ask you, but... As a black woman, you're trying to influence change in a white-led corporate world. A lot of those stakeholders are resistant to that. A lot of them are resistant to it, and they throw monkey wrenches. And I would argue that a lot of times, some of these leaders in the organizations that you go into are flat-out racist. Whether they believe it or not, that's what I believe. So my question is, when you feel this or when you know this, as a black woman, how do you navigate that space? What advice can you give other practitioners Because how do you manage what you feel personally with what's happening in front of you? 
I love this question and what a tremendous question it is. There's so much that's coming up for me, Anthony. The first thing that I will say is this career path in many regards, I often share, it chose me. I didn't necessarily choose it, but once I leaned into that and I embraced it, I had to take inventory of my own emotional capital and how much of it I have to give to this work. Because I am keenly aware that in order to be effective, we have to, as practitioners in this space, navigate very thoughtfully, leading with intellect, leading with strategy, leading with heart, and not allowing the -the in-the-moment knee-jerk reactions that we encounter every single day to prevent us from keeping the main goal the main goal. And so I think that because I have reconciled that that's part of what makes me effective in this space, I am able to separate the work from the person in many regards and to find that common ground to help bridge the gap just so that we can be in conversation, right? When aggression meets aggression, the conversation ends, there's no rapport, there's no trust, there's no influence. And ultimately, what I am attempting to do is where I can influence people to be on their own journey of self-discovery. And then through that self-discovery to dig deeper, to learn more about the things that they need to unlearn or relearn. And so I think that's been my position. I'm not always completely successful. And some people just don't want to be found, if you will. Some people want to stay into that place of complacency. And those are not my people. I often say that when I think about my audience, that the people that I want to reach and that I want to allow my sphere of influence to help impact some type of change, it's not those who have dug their heels in and said, I'm right here and I'm going to stay right here. Those are not my people. I would rather spend my energy and my time and my passion on those who I feel like are just unaware. They have not yet at all just been... um, in a situation where they have encountered enough information to help them follow their curiosities, those are my people. I like the fence sitters. I like those who just haven't yet realized that the power Mm -hmm. that they have that intentionality. And so I talk about that all the time. Fence sitters. That just caught me. I love language. I love That's a good description. How is, I'm sorry, go ahead. Why do we have friends who call them culture sculptures? They just sit there and watch. (laughs) I'm curious though, could you tell us about a time where you were dealing with these fence hitters, you thought they were in your sphere and it went the other way and how you dealt with that both for yourself, well, your own well-being as well as for the client? Yeah, it happens. It, It happens on occasions. I was going to say quite frequently and in the beginning of my establishing my firm, it happened more because I had not yet fully matured to the place I am as a practitioner in this space. But I say that because in the beginning, as a founder, as a business owner, you tend to want to say yes to everything that comes your way, right? You want to be able to serve and support. And you also want to be able to pay the bills, right? Mm-hmm. You're building a business. <laughs> and yes, right. a lot of things. Right. I am much wiser um, today. And I am fortunate and blessed to where my company, NWC, is at a place to where we can be a lot more selective about the opportunities we say yes and no to. And so for me, what that looks like is during the process of the discovery conversations, understanding what the needs are, understanding what our superpowers are and how we can solution around those needs, I'm able to ask some really pointed questions that allows me to understand what the impetus is for those client partners to want to be on this journey. And that's very telling for me. And so going back to your question early on, when I was not as mature as a professional as I am today, if I would hear someone respond to that question in a way that I honestly felt you're not ready and I am not going to be able to get you ready, I would still say yes. And what was evidence of that is I was constantly at every turn, every conversation, having to sell and resell again. There was never any movement towards, okay, I now get this portion, now let's move to the next level of this process. They were stuck. So to me, what that looks like is they don't want to get unstuck. And I'm not at all a practitioner that believes that in order for someone to work with NWC, they have to have it all together because obviously what is the whole point of having practitioners with subject matter expertise if we want all of our clients or prospective clients to have it all together? But what I look for is that mindset. Are you willing to be agile enough to allow 
the work that you are, you've contracted and that you've hired us to do to help you apply what you need to do so that we can co-create this success story together. And so that's what I would say to that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you got to a point where you, it's that, you mentioned that mindset. Um, and I want to go a little further with that. So the Spence Center, how, what's your, how did, what's your decision-making process and how can you help those leaders who are on the fence come to the right side? What has been your sweet spot? How have you been able yeah, to I, convince those fence setters? Yeah. So there's a couple of things that I found to be really helpful when deciphering the readiness of organizations that we may decide to partner with. One is through a leadership readiness assessment. And it is more or less a strategic conversation that is informed first and foremost by the intel that each one of those leaders independently will share through a survey to help shape how in which I need to design this instructional learning experience, this organizational readiness experience. But I ask questions around, what do you feel would be some of the key barriers that would prevent you from being able to really actualize this work? And in essence, what I'm doing in asking a question like that is I need for them to share in the reality of understanding what are those detractors? What are those things that can be can create a derailment to the work? Because if they can answer that, then they've spent some time really understanding what this journey is going to be about. I also ask questions like, what is your personal commitment to this work of DEI? Where do you feel like you need some additional development? And it's always telling to me if someone is saying none, I feel like I'm already completely bought in because there's different levels of being bought in. It doesn't look the same across each person. So when I can assess that individually and then I look at the collective answer, it clearly allows me to be able to speak to this group and say, there's some tension points. You have some that feel like we aren't going fast enough. We aren't being aggressive enough. We aren't being strategic enough. We aren't holding people accountable enough. And then you have others that say, we need to slow walk this to make sure we can bring everyone along. That's a tension point. So how do we solve for that? So for me, it is all about really trying to assess the individual leader readiness, as well as the collective readiness of that leadership team, and then use that information to help formulate what are those appropriate steps and action items and strategies that will be instrumental to helping to ready that group so that when it's time to really address this and bring the entire organization along, it is not going to be stalled or it's not going to be ineffective because that group is misaligned. So that alignment piece is so critical. And I think a lot of organizations skip that portion. We probably all have heard organizations to say, we believe in this work. We're ready for this work. We're committed. Now tell us what to do. That's a red flag for me. Whereas for others, it would be, oh, this is great. This is going to be a perfect client. But what I find is that if they say that without taking the time to really do the work of proving that, then it's really just rhetoric, really in reality. And so it's important to me to dig deep, to peel back all the layers, get to the crux of the matter and mm -hmm. solve for it there, because that's where I feel like we gain the most traction and momentum is when we can align that leadership team around this work. I love that. I want to go back when we first opened up today and you talked a little bit about you didn't really choose this work. This work chose you. Can you talk us a little bit about that? Because I think probably each of us in this room had this moment yeah. of I'm working, I'm doing, I'm on my nine to five. I was in the military, so I thought I would be retired and just living the good life right now. And then chose to dive into DEIB work, which like you said, it's a lift. Can you talk to us a little bit about that moment when it chose you? You have marketing in your background and I actually have marketing too. I've seen that's an interesting merge of marketers tend to say, we want to move into a place where we can make a difference and do more mission driven work. Yeah. And so when was that point where it chose you? Yeah, such a great question, Joy. And I, I'm glad to hear that we have that commonality also in terms of our marketing background. And Anthony, I recall before we started our conversation today, you complimented me on my marketing prowess. So it is something that's really important to mm -hmm. spend a number of years, more than a decade, working directly in that space of marketing communications. And I am headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina. That's my home base. At the time when I was really discovering that I was drawn to this work of DEI is when I was directly 
in marketing communication. Specifically, I was working for an advertising agency, about 400 plus employees. And this agency, while headquartered in Greenville, South Carolina, also has a really large presence in New York. And so I was in between both offices and I always took notice of how, from a diversity perspective of the workforce, it was much richer and of course, New York. Now, that wasn't surprising necessarily because New York is the advertising capital of the world. Obviously, you have just this melting pot of all different types of individuals from different backgrounds and experiences. But when you were to really couple the importance of how to be a smart marketing partner to your clients, consumer constituencies who represent diverse America, it just forced me to think about why aren't we in Greenville, South Carolina, doing more to create that same level of diversity and inclusion so that we can generate better outcomes for our client partners? Empowering individuals to achieve their career goals and reach their full potential. Hawkeye Community College is providing flexible and customized business solutions, allowing organizations to strengthen employee productivity. And what I also was keenly aware of is that at this time, the advertising capital of the world, New York, and even Chicago, who is a second to New York in terms of just the industry being in a surplus, those markets were challenged. So much so to where the attorney general was knocking on the offices of some of those New York agencies and saying, you have to diversify. Our industry depends upon it. Now, how are you going to do it? Yeah, this is not a suggestion. It is a mandate. We'll be back in six months to see how you're doing. No one was paying attention to Greenville, South Carolina, because again, we're just not known for that industry. But I had that intel. And I remember thinking to myself, why would we wait for someone to knock on our door and place a mandate when we have already reconciled on our own that part of what makes us smart marketing partners to our clients whose consumer constituencies represent diverse America and even global that is what the key secret sauce is. And so I love my job. It was always on time, on budget, on strategy. And I really felt like I was going to be in this work for the long haul. I really enjoyed it. But I cannot let go of this epiphany of if I love this work so much, why aren't there others who look like me as a Black woman taking advantage of this career path? And I couldn't let that go. So I recall going to the president's CEO at the time, who was very hands-on. He, I had a good rapport with him. And I shared a similar narrative that I'm sharing with the three of you. And I knew that our BHAG, Big Harry Audacious Goal, was to become the most admired agency in the Southeast. And so it just begged the question, if this is what we want and what we are after, what we desire, then why are we waiting to implement some of these practices that we know is making a big difference in some of these other larger markets? So here's my thing. When you said that, I have friends that work in corporate America. Yeah. And although it's I love BHAG and that's like marketing, we get excited about that because it represents an opportunity. I'm sure in corporate America, there were people that were like, what does this have to do with our KPIs and all (laughs) like, how could you? So can you even talk us a little bit through like, how did you how were you able to communicate? This is the long term goal. This isn't tomorrow or a year from now or even five years from now, we're necessarily going to see the results of a fruit of our labor, but we got to commit. Yeah. At this time, I was an astute marketing professional. I, that was my jam, right? I knew it and I knew the work incredibly well, but this DEI, while I had lived experiences, I was not trained practitioner by any means at all, but I knew that it needed to be done and I had the wherewithal to be able to take my strategic corporate mind to build a plan. And so at the end of that conversation that I just shared with you all, where I went to the president's CEO, he asked very thought-provoking questions. And then he ended the conversation with Nika. I agree. We need to do this. You're the person to do it. You're going to lead it. Now tell me how. I was prepared for everything in that conversation with the exception of tell me how. But- What I did have was a tribe and a network of really astute DEI practitioners who were in the trenches doing this work for their respective organizations who had created a great level of success. So I, in essence, became a student. I just immersed myself in all things DEIB. And um, 
And then it led to more professional certifications, me getting my doctorate, where my focus was very specifically from a research perspective on this work. And so it was I was then charting and planning my exit strategy to be able to work into this space full time without knowing it. Because once I responded and said, okay, I did start leading this work, but I was leading it in the confines of an advertising agency. And then fast forward years later, once I had built up a good level of success stories around um how in which I was approaching the work, it led to these different opportunities for me to serve as VP of DEI of different organizations. And then ultimately I caught the entrepreneurship bug and said, I want to do this for myself because I want to be able to control as much as possible how this work gets done. Because even when you do this work inside of organizations, you are confined, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't like those limitations. I have such deep convictions about this work that I wanted to be able to have the freedom to say yes to opportunities that I felt would really lead towards impact and not just activity. Activity has a start and an end date. Impact is where you really are driving towards DEI transformative change. And to not language again. I love that. (laughs) And just not being confined. We hear stories all the time about organizations who will put someone in this role, but not fully give them the power, the authority and the freedom to do the role and to do it well. Yeah. So I love talking to authors on here because I've always wanted to write a book. I just can't get past my own writer's block. But what was your inspiration between the books? I love the titles, the intentionality and the inclusion parts of it. But what was your kind of, your inspiration there and any challenges you had along the way there as well? And how we come to point A to point B there? Yeah, Nick, I love this question. And by the way, Joy, as you were reading my bio, I realized that it's a bit outdated because I have completed book number three in partnership with Forbes, which was amazing in and of itself to be reached out, sought after by Forbes to say, we we want to publish a book with you on this topic. It releases January 31. Congratulations. We'll have to club it. it, Definitely. (laughs) Thank you. So people certainly can pre-order the book now. I'm super excited. And it's called Include Uncomplicated, a transformative guide to simplify DEI. You know, my messaging platform to get to your question, Nick, has been all about trying to demystify, to uncomplicate, and to make DEI practical. I believe that's one of the reasons that a lot of people are fence sitters or they don't fully engage in an effective way is simply because they are afraid of the unknowns. Maybe they are unaware. You don't know what you don't know. And so I want to make this work practical. I want to try to allow people to not feel inundated by what can feel like a really daunting process and to help them to see it more in bite sizes and that it is about incremental change over time and not just trying to boil the ocean. And being an author has afforded me the ability to take my voice around how I approach this work and to put it into written form. And I want this to be, and I believe it will be, a guide. I want people to not just put this on a bookshelf and read it once, only to return to every so often, but I want it to stay on their desk. I want them to have their highlighters out. I want them to earmark the pages. I want notes all in the margins and want this to be a resource. And, and so that was really build of all of my authored pieces. The first book was Intentional Inclusionist. It was really just getting people at the individual level, the personal level, to try to buy into what does that mean? Because so many people will perceive this work to be the sole responsibility of a department or maybe like a chief diversity office mm-hmm. manager. And I want people to know this work belongs to all of us, regardless yes. of your title, right? And then the next book took it a step further, and it was it's called The Next Level inclusionist, transforming yourself and your work for DEI success. And so that is more about now that you've heard your personal accountability and influence. Now, how do we take that influence and apply it to the spaces and places that we dwell, like our workplaces, our communities? And then this third one is, again, just me now saying, now that you've been introduced to a good bit of the foundation of this work, how do you uncomplicate it so that you can catapult yourself to the next level? of whatever this work looks like for you, because we're all at different places in our journey, right? Oh, let's go there a little bit, because you mentioned kind of practitioners and doing this work. And one of the things that I know that I've been going on a personal journey on, I know all of us is in, in terms of how we do this work, we've always felt, at least I was always thought when I came into this space, and I fell into it by accident like you, that this work has to be taught to people, like academically wow. taught to people that... Because companies are always looking for, you know what? I need to learn about diversity. I need to go train. 
I need to learn about diversity. I need someone to tell me that on day one, I need to do this. And on day four, I need to do this. And it becomes routine and it becomes almost like security training every year. So how do you get past that? Because our belief, at least my, I'll speak for Anthony. My belief is that I used to be a big believer that we have to get leaders to listen, but leaders change and the culture doesn't change because the people make up the culture. And yeah. so how do you manage through that with your approach to this space, your, yeah. pra your practical academic approach, but also getting real with people about how they're yeah. going to transform? Because it doesn't matter how many books or PowerPoints I put in front of you. you. Know. If you don't have that, maybe your first book is your most important book. So how do you navigate <laughs> through all that? Yeah, such an important question. There's a couple things that are coming up for me as I think about how I want to respond. I have two philosophies, one of which is that as a practitioner in this space, I care so deeply about this work that I have really enjoyed. And there's a lot of there's a huge sense of pride in that over the past couple years, this body of work has grown in its popularity in terms of people leaning in, having mm -hmm. a deeper and richer appetite for it and more organizations and individuals committing to this work. I also hold the middle and that both and for me is that while that's good, I'm also troubled in some regards by the fact that overnight there are a number of people who have become self-proclaimed experts in this work. And I say that because I believe in finding the silver lining and not letting something as horrific as the murder of George Floyd to not allow us as a society to gain some good from it. And mm -hmm. so I love that it increased people's appetite. What I am also mindful of, though, is that there has been a little bit of harm that has been created yeah. by people self-proclaiming expertise, really trying to capitalize on the moment in a way that is, is a little bit threatening to, to, to the body of work. And so to your point, Anthony, just because I am a woman of color with multiple intersecting identities does not necessarily mean that I am equipped to be able to do this work and do this work effectively. Yes, I have my own lived experiences, but it does not necessarily mean that I should be in a position of leading organizations externally or even internally. Can I influence that and be a part of it? Yes. But I think that it's equally important for the practitioners who are really trying to establish their voice of authority to align that with the practicality of what have you done to really fuel and feed that and grow that just like anything else. Mm -hmm. So much innovation that I think needs to find its way into this work, just like any other industry yeah. or practice. Right? You don't just one day be good at something because, you know, you have evolved to that place without continuing to understand what else is out there. What are new innovations? What are new processes and procedures and thoughts and leadership that I need to gain to be able to take this point to the next level? And so I carry both of those thoughts in a way that sometimes can be hard, can be tension points and hard to reconcile. And I think what's also important for us to realize is that this work takes both will and skill. There are too many Love people it. who rely only on will and the passion. Passion will only allow us to get but so far. Yep. Right? Absolutely. That. Yeah. How have you had to communicate to someone though? Because in my line, and I think we all have come across people that because they had lived experience, felt like they were more adept at leading in this space than they potentially were. So that's part A of my question and part yeah. B, which is a totally separate question. So it's really question number two. <laughs> I recently went to Afrotech, which was amazing, by the way, and my partners know that I absolutely loved it. Yes, it was amazing. And in the executive lounge, they showed this documentary that I won't give up. They haven't released it yet, but it was phenomenal. And one of the um, people in there who has been doing equity work for a long time talked about there's even some of a guilt of people wouldn't call him back before George Floyd murder and then that happens and inundated with phone calls and money and people wanting to support and I feel like I'm, I love language right and so I had never heard anyone give voice to the feeling of being in this line of work prior to that even though I know we all felt it top rank we've had more people want to invest in us because George Floyd. And so they're looking for something that says they're about diversity, equity, inclusion. If you were Black Lives Matter, NAACP, we all kind of benefited from this a man losing his life. And so have you had to struggle with some of those emotions? Like I said, there were totally two separate questions, <laughs> but I wanted to ask about both of them. Because again, when they voiced that in that documentary, I was just like, 
wow, like I feel it. Right. But again, like you said, everybody wants to lean in now in this space. But even like, where do we go with that even feeling? Yeah, I think it's important for everyone. Let's take this even outside of the context of being a DEI practitioner. But I think it's important for everyone to be so self-aware of their triggers so where they can govern themselves accordingly and then create those boundaries. And so let's put that now in the context of me as a Black woman who is married to a Black man and has a young adult Black son and also a young adult Black daughter who is an activist in her own right. When George Floyd happened, I wasn't devoid of also having my own feelings that I needed to process, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it was really about, again, just understanding what type of emotional capital do I have and then answering that for myself almost every day because it will shift from days to days. I remember after George Floyd, I had one of my white male um, counterparts who's also in this space to reach out to me and we were doing our normal conversation where he calls me up every so often and we're really just being thought partners. And so it was, a, I thought, a, a call business as usual. And Nika, how are you? So I proceeded to talk about what was going on in my life and the work world and this and that. And he said, no, Nika, how are you? Mm-hmm. And in that moment, just the way in which he asked that question, I broke. And it was the first time mm-hmm. that I began to really just sit with why are you putting on this mask? You, while you are a DEI practitioner, you are a mother of a black boy. You are a mother of a black girl. You are a wife of a black man. And I just became so overwhelmed. And I also was overwhelmed because it is not every day that we encounter as black women, white men who see us. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to say that he was able to put himself in my shoes because that's not possible. But he was able to hold space in a way that I didn't even allow myself to for myself because I felt like I had to always be on, Mm -hmm. right? So I think part of the answer to your question, Joy, is we have to know our own triggers. And even as practitioners, we have to also know where we need to take a step back and rest because our cup is half empty and we need to let somebody else step in. So for me, when I am making those decisions about what kind of talent do I need to surround myself with on my team, I think about that. Or do they have the capacity to be able to socialize when, as a practitioner, when, you know what, this is heavy for me today, I can't carry this baton. And to trust our colleagues to be able to say, my cup is full today. I can take that, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's so important because we are going to have our days. And I also think that what makes DEI practitioners really strong in their work is that they do allow themselves to feel and to be vulnerable, right? And to be aware of their triggers and when the emotional capital is not there. Because otherwise, if we don't take a step back, we're going to go in, right, to the lion's den. We're not going to be prepared. And that's what I did to that conversation. I went in trying to be the strong lioness. I can have this conversation regardless of what's going on. And he helped me to see, you don't have to always try to show up so brave. Not in this moment. Allow yourself to be and to feel. And that was a gift for me. It really was. I'm so glad that you mentioned that part of that post-George Floyd helped raise the awareness of DEI and B, but it also hurt because you had some of these quote unquote practitioners coming out of the woodwork. And I have to be honest, as I think about the work that top rank was doing when we started this work, we were doing this before George Floyd, but we fell into this. We leaned to your word. We leaned into this more so than we ever had before. And we're continued learners following folks like you following other practitioners because we knew we didn't have all the answers and what, Ticks me off more than anything, and I'll just say it like that because that's how I feel, okay. <laughs> is those practitioners who yeah. come into rooms or organizations who contact Anthony because he's black and think Anthony has all the answers. And you have these sessions or you have these trainings and they're ineffective because Anthony never had all the answers to begin with. Yeah. But because he was black, you thought that was cool. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I really appreciated your approach with that. Cause I know one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past is tokenism and, and us being used in those positions without being paid, by the way, you talked about that too. So I really wanted to just kind of highlight that yeah, because I, it's know, so important. It, it, it's funny. And you mentioned the other white male that spoke with you 
and you know, we talk about this in the space a lot and you know, I'll get invites to go be like for Hispanic heritage month to be a speaker. And I'm like, why me? Absolutely not. And I think that you'll see a lot of these post George Floyd people, they'll go do anything for a dollar. It seems like, and, mm-hmm. and it's very frustrating to see that because of the harm that you realize the harm it's doing. And while I'm not a lived experiencer, I do have empathy and understand that. And I just see that. And it's just, it's. But you chose to go learn and you chose to educate yourself. It's just frustrating. Which is people's responsibility. Yeah. Yes. And Nick, what I love about what you shared is that not only did you choose to learn and to be a part of that, to bring what you could, it's undeniable that a white man has great level of influence over other white men. And so recognizing that power and then leveraging it for the greater the good of humanity yeah. is so important. That's so important. So I don't like the council culture. Let me share that. And I know that was something that really caused a lot of people to back off and to be not only a fence sitter, but to jump the fence on the other side mm-hmm. was because they felt like even in the opportunities where in my vulnerability, I took risks to lean in. I felt horrible afterwards because I was shamed, guilted, blamed, judged. I don't want to go back in. So I'm going to stay over here and mind my own business, look down, hope no one catches eye contact with me. And perhaps that's going to be my approach. Silence is a message as well, but it's not the brave message. We have to choose courage over comfort. And so the reason that I don't like the council culture is because of what I just shared. It pushes people out. And I think that we all need to be a part of solutioning for this, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter when you enter the conversation, once you're in If you show a willingness to want to really be on this learning journey, I'm going to meet you there. I'm going to help you track, right? And so that's what I mean by the mindset and the willingness. And I believe that sometimes we cause people to want to stay on the outside if we aren't allowing them the space and the time to jump in where they can. So one question I like to ask that kind of talks a little bit about the, it's a what's worse one, right? Is it worse coming into an organization and having them be, more towards that problem culture to begin with or coming in after one of those consultants that we talked about that maybe aren't there and have done some harm and coming in after them and trying to fix things. Which one seems in your experience to have been worse and how do you combat that? You all are asking such really good questions. Because we love you, Mika. (laughs) But I've had to reflect on this before because similarly, this has been presented to myself and my team. No, we need to do something. We haven't done anything in the past. And so part of us reaching out, yes, the impetus was that we saw how visual and how hard and how brutal and how violent the murder of George Floyd was. And so we realized we can no longer sit on the sidelines. We have to do something. So given that, though, here we are. And I have embraced those individuals because sometimes we don't know what we don't know, even as, as much and as plentiful of resources that abound around our history and these topics and how racism is very much deeply embedded into our systems, sometimes it takes something that's really in your face in order for people to feel enough to move them towards action. And I don't want to negate that that experience right. created some good for all of us in terms of increasing our appetite. And in my mind, I'm going to say two wrongs don't make a right. Just because you haven't done it in the past does not mean that you can't start today being committed. Right. But yep. what does that look like? Let us help you make sure you understand what committing to that looks like so that you are prepared, so that it doesn't come across performative. And by the way, part of what that looks like is you being willing to articulate and socialize. We've missed it on many accounts, right? We have not been operating effective Mm -hmm. in this space, but here's what we are committing to do now and going forward. And then let the evidence of your commitment be seen through delivering upon that. So second part of that question, before I pass, I know Joy's like ready for (laughs) this question. So how do we respond? So George Floyd, let's go back even further. Pearl Harbor happens. Boom, there's a big, we're going to do something. 9-11 happens. Boom. Does it feel like George Floyd, the same thing? It's this happens and Mm. now it's tapering off. And and how do we defeat that? How do we keep pushing the message? Yes, it absolutely does. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's a universal, though, response across the board, because I have seen with just some of the clients I work with, that was their impetus for starting to get a deeper commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging. And they are all in, and it's almost as though they really have committed in so many different areas and ways towards bringing that full circle. And I also have had some organizations that I work with to where the momentum was so high 
um, that they started out really with a great sense of urgency, right? They were committing all the things, all the investment of dollars and human mm-hmm. capital, et cetera. And then that has tapered off. But for me, though, I think it's also about the practice of just like anything else that we find to be really critical for organizations and society in general, we have to keep it in front of us. I think about those of us who are parents, right? When we have young kids, we don't just teach them a lesson once. We continue to put it before them. We continue to allow opportunities for them to refine that learning, for them to apply that learning. And so I think that where organizations are falling down on their job is not continuing to implement those processes and protocols and procedures so that it remains top of mind. Yep, because and it's... That's where I, yeah, and that's where I think a lot of practitioners, consultants, or even internal DEI subject matter experts can help organizations to move the needle. Yep, and it's a, that training sits on the shelf there, right? Because they're yeah, not applying it, it now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that's another thing, Anthony. I think that we spend so much time trying to make DEI a program or an initiative. And no, it needs to be operationalized, institutionalized, yep. a part of every aspect of an organization. Yep. And you'll never, in my opinion, you'll never get there until you get those human beings to understand. And you said it earlier, and I'm going to point like you did, the mindset. Because <laughs> yes. all the other stuff doesn't matter. We can't get them to change their mind. We probably should get to our guest question. I think Joy had a good one. Did you have a good one? Did I have a good one? Look, <laughs> you had that look. You, you've answered so many good things. Coming back to what Anthony said, though, about it has to be a mind shift. What happens when there's not? What happens when there is somebody, someone, some department that is just an all-in-all roadblock and there is not? If I'm in an organization and I'm a DEI practitioner, and I kind of have my ideas about this, and I've been hired, I'm a CDO, right, because everybody wanted a CDO, Right. And so I've been hired to be a CDO and I'm supposed to meet these goals, but there's just barriers in my way. What would you recommend for those individuals? Because I know many people that were hired as a CDO. They may have gotten a great salary. They did a fancy rollout, press release and everything. And then nothing. They don't report to anybody in leadership. There's no accountability. There's no they no can't. Really, there's no budget. Oh, that's a big yeah. one. <laughs> Seriously. Some practitioners may not like my response to this, but the first thing is, is if you're in a position right now where, you know, all of the writing is on the wall in terms of no budget, no power, no authority, no support, then you need to be planning your exit strategy. Come on with me. Talk to me. If that is a space and work that you really care deeply about, pretending that you're going to be able to do a complete 180 when there is no evidence of anyone budging from where they currently are is going to frustrate you even more. It's going to be harmful to you even more. And so I would say, yes, plan your exit strategy. Now, for those who are in a position to where maybe there's Mm -hmm. some writing on the wall, but there's still hope because you're seeing that you do have some champions, some strategic alliances of other key stakeholders and leaders that are able to help really influence how in which the organization is planning its investment of dollars and resources around helping to support that, then I would say align very closely with those individuals and allow them to also help bring others along. I think that when people feel like a plan is being developed and it's happening to them instead of being developed for them and happening with them, then there's a different approach to how people will engage. I remember going into an organization and developing a plan for them. And I I was a W-2 employee for this organization. And while I had the skill sets and I was well-equipped to go and develop a DEI strategy on my own and then to just deliver it, I knew that was not going to be effective. I needed people to have a sense of ownership around what was finding its way into the plan, very specifically as it relates to their individual respective areas that they were, that fell under their purview. And then it becomes their idea, their plans, their strategy. So when I ask questions like, what are the metrics of success? It's not me giving them KPIs around those elements. It is them saying, this is what I feel like is reasonable. This is what I feel like is attainable. And this is what I feel like we can track. And then it's not something that I own. And then we collectively, if we're doing that, we all are owning it together. I also believe that education is really important. 
but it can't happen just in and of itself. A lot of organizations will try to solve for this work by training. First and foremost, I don't like the word training. It sounds like a destination. Mm -hmm. At NWC, we use language like learning and development experiences because it Mm -hmm. needs to be just that, a strategy of multiple experiences, leveraging multiple modalities. People learn in different ways, right? They They receive the process differently. So we can't just do a one-time mandatory training where you have someone lecturing to you and then say, okay, now we've done all we needed to do. Mm -hmm. Everybody needs line. This doesn't work that way. Yes, exactly. (laughs) So the awareness piece, the bringing people along through the learning experiences that are not one and done, but ongoing, leveraging multiple modalities, and then aligning the data that you may collect either through a deep dive assessment process, but some type of audit to have a baseline of where you are to inform your strategic plan And what makes that strategic plan work is not just having the measurables. We often say what gets measured gets done. That's only half of it. What gets measured gets done and where you hold people accountable, they deliver. So the accountability mechanism has to be embedded into that plan. And then holistically, if you think about the education and the awareness and the exposure through the learning experiences coupled with now we have a plan with metrics of success, accountability mechanisms, we can then begin to see some type of upward movement around what we're trying to accomplish with our DEIB work. Nika, I love that. I missed the audience question because I wanted to ask my own person. Okay, so they're backing me up to the audience (laughs) question. We got questions. And going forward, if if our listeners will check out our social media platforms, we'll start posting our guests ahead of time and, and, you know, get more questions that way too. All right. So Calvin from Des Moines, Iowa, shout out to Des Moines. He says, I am a production supervisor for a metal plant. And for the past year, we have been doing DEI training. We were just told starting in 2023, we'll be holding off on training due to budget considerations. However, I think it is because people are complaining about having to train on this topic and that the company is caving. Any advice for how some of us can approach management to ask if we can please continue? This is a common one. I've heard of this. I'm glad you get to answer that, Nika. Right, especially right. Our state. right, especially. And Nika's in South, I mean, we're both in states that are politically yep. charged. Yep. Yes, absolutely. So one thing I will say is that outside of even just those states who are feeling quite compromised because of the nature of the political climate, there's also this... Um, this looming recession or soon to be recession. It depends on who you talk to. Some people are like, mm-hmm. you're talking it up by just saying that it's already here. Regardless, we are starting to see in many regards across many different industries and sectors that organizations are being much more thoughtful about their investment of dollars, right? I am even seeing within my business that the sales cycle is now expanded beyond what it used to be. People are taking much longer to close the deal around these types of DEI consultancy engagement opportunities. And so I'm not surprised that this particular individual has brought this to the surface as a question. I would say that part of continuing the work is helping people to realize that the education, the awareness, the learning experiences do not have to always equate to some type of financial investment, right? I believe that probably if you were to just ask questions, a lot of organizations may have individuals that have different subsets of knowledge that could be useful to sharing with others. I think about the fact that there's so many modalities of getting people to process together what they know, what they've heard, what they've learned, how they feel, even like the brave space sharing that took place after George Floyd between a lot of organizations. Hearing your perspective and what's coming up for you and how you're processing, that's a learning experience. This is abound. There are tons of films and books and webinars that cost nearly nothing. Yeah. There are lots of free webinars. I think about LinkedIn Learning. I have a LinkedIn, mm-hmm. LinkedIn Learning course that I'm working on right now, but I think about all of the LinkedIn learning courses, how so often you'll see this one is is free for the next week or two. I mean, there are ways that people really want to get the knowledge. A lot of people are finding book to be something that's really useful. And so I think that being just creative and helping to be a part of the solution of maybe we can't bring in an outside speaker that may cost thousands of dollars, but we can do this, right? Right. And I'll put in a very shameless plug for NWC. We offer lots of courtesy resources that helps to keep people engaged. I think about our Intentional Conversations podcast we do every week where we have two plus years of weekly content that's just free we have every week we release new content with a video called inclusion uncomplicated it's just a quick snippet no more Mm -hmm. than two to three minutes and you have a book 
another and, book. And yes, we have papers. books. Yes. Yes. I mean, so again, I even find that organizations maybe just being resourceful around what are some articles that deal with the topic of DEI and sharing the article out and saying, hey, let's just let's group together and just have some thoughts and conversations around what we inferred from the article and how we may be able to apply it. There's multiple ways yeah. to keep learning going. Calvin, thank you for that. Cal- Calvin in Des Moines, this podcast is free. The top rank runs this podcast. Here's a resource for you. And that's why we have folks like Nick online because there's plenty of ways. So it sounds like what I'm hearing, and I guess maybe I'll put it in more layman's terms for Calvin, is that there's opportunities for your company to do the work. And I would suggest that you ask your boss, what if your managers or leadership what if there are opportunities for us to find ways that don't impact the budget to continue this work? Would you do it? Because the answer is pretty clear. If the answer is no at that point, now we got an issue on whether you want to do the work. It's not a budget issue anymore. It's not a budget issue, right? It's not a budget issue, Nick. Right. Well, thank you for that. Listeners, keep bringing in the questions. Send them to info at toprankedtalentsolutions.com. Please send those questions in. We'd love to hear from you. Next, I don't think we really have anything else. We could talk to you all day. We really could. Because we're really wrapping up the close of our show. So what we like to do is make sure, is there anything, any message to leaders, or any message to community or listeners that you would like to leave them with in order to help them influence their journey along the way? As we and we can. have to have you back, too. Sorry, yes, Anthony. We, but have to have you we, back. Ha- we didn't even touch the floor of the things that you've done to support small business owners. And oh, you yeah. have such a plethora that right. we have to have you back. It's tough getting these shows in 40 minutes. I know. (laughs) I know, absolutely. I'm truly honored to have had this time and space to share with each of you and with your broadened community. And so thank you. I would love to be able to be invited back. We've touched on a lot. You've asked some very thought-provoking questions today. And so I'm grateful to have had the space to just really even challenge myself as I explore some of those themes and topics. With the topic of the recession that a lot of people I know are really concerned about, I just want to send a message of encouragement and to impress upon those organizations organizational leaders to be very thoughtful about the consequences and the implications of pulling back your investment around anything related to DEI, because it very much is part of what's going to help you be the separator, I truly believe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. think about what's on the horizon. This is about your people. So if you are people first, there's no way you cannot consider the significance of DEI and investing, because investing in DEI is investing in your people. So just keep that top of mind. Yeah. You are making those decisions. I, as a founder myself, I don't at all want to pretend that it's not a commonplace reality for leaders to be really challenged with competing priorities and having to make dollars stretch. I just want you to be very thoughtful about, again, the people-centric approach being directly connected to the DEI work and investment. I love that. Thank you so much, Dr. Nico White. We just appreciate you here on Breaking Barriers. Go get the book. If you haven't had the first one or the second one, you need to order all three. Pre-order the third book, but please support it. Dr. Nico White is amazing. Thank and you. we just appreciate you so much for being and, and here. And use the books. And use <laughs> the books. Them. Don't, Don't get them. them. <laughs> Mark them up. Refer to them. Put stickies in them, she said. Yes, yes exactly. Yes. A big shout out to our five-star presenting sponsor, Kirkwood Community College. We appreciate your partnership on this podcast. And we also want to give thanks to our friends at Breaking Barriers, Tyler Lincoln Barnes, DDS, and Community Savings Bank. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. Hit us up and send us your questions, comments, suggestions to info at toprankedtalentsolutions.com. Yeah. Special thanks to our listeners. Without you, we would not be here. We would not have the Nikas of the world joining us. So thank you for listening. When we release this very soon, you'll know about it. Jump onto your favorite podcast platform. We'll also be on YouTube video as well. So we look forward to that. Special news coming. We're looking at roughly releasing one every first week and third week of we're still working on that with our producer. Who's, um, Hang out with us. Out with us. Uh, and our next one coming up is uh, Fields Jackson. Should be releasing about two weeks after this one. We hope you take whatever you heard with you today on your journey to change hearts and minds when it comes to DIMB. This is the hard work. And we want you all to be with us and supporting us and taking what you learn from us. So thank you so much. Until next time. Until next time. Break, break some barriers. barriers. Break, break some, some barriers. barriers. Advancing equity is not a one-year project. It's a generational commitment. There are too few people in the world willing to be the domino. Too few people willing to take that fall.